If you think because you're unknown, you can't make a difference, wrong. One person, even if he or she is not a hero, can make real ripples in the political and cultural world. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Who is it that the powers that be have been so successful at convincing so many of us that we're powerless, there's nothing we can do to make change? No question they learned from the remarkably successful activism that was the civil rights and the anti-war movements, and no question politicians are still highly sensitive to public opinion. After all, no matter how much money they gather from powerful special interests, the only way they can keep their jobs is by winning the most votes. We are not powerless, not at all. Some on the progressive left did become big stars, names we all know, but the most obvious voices are hardly the only ones that count. The movements of the 60s were not a few well-known individuals. There were millions of us on the streets, making noise, writing letters, distributing leaflets, and all of that mattered. Before learning of her book, I certainly had never heard of our guest today, and probably neither have you, dear listener. Her name is Dinah Yesney, and Sam Brown, director of Action, one of those activists who is known, says of her new book, It's a story of an American hero unsung, largely unknown outside her community, quietly taking every step to help others, beautifully crafted. It tells the story of how one person can cast ripples in the world. Yesney's efforts give me hope for humanity. That's all from uh, Sam Brown. Uh, Dinah, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thanks for having me, Bert. The book is titled Politically Defined, Memoir of an Unknown Activist. And as another celebrity activist, Henry Aaron, says, you don't have to be famous to make things better, end of quote. Dinah Yesney is a native of St. Paul, Minnesota. She received her B.A. from University of Minnesota in 1968, her J.D. from Vermont Law School in 1981 social worker, public administrator, and attorney, and at various times she has been an activist working for peace, equality, and social justice all of her life. Aside from the activist celebrities we rarely get to see in detail is the work and workmanship of those closer to the front. What led you to write this book? Well, I, I had some things I wanted to say. And um, I thought that my life might be of interest to people. And I really do feel that we are so, it's so important right now that, that anyone with an activist instinct feel there's a place for them in making things better because we've got a lot of things we have to make better. And so I, I started writing and I found when I started that the, book just came pouring out. It it wasn't hard to write. Nice. Oh, a lot of people don't have that uh, gift, uh, to put it mildly. It takes a lot of work. It's really hard. People get discouraged. Well, that's good. And you're right. There's so much to do. And yet we've gotten a lot done already. We really have. And we'll talk about that as we go along. 
And just looking at some of your background, before my father died, I was shocked that I discovered that he and I were reading the same book, American Dreamer, by Senator John Culver, about former vice president and progressive party uh, candidate for president Henry A. Wallace, whom I believe my dad <laughs> voted for in 1948. Uh, and your entry into politics began as a three-year-old with that campaign. Your family tree is rooted in some progressive stock. Please tell us about that first experience, if you remember, and about your uncle, who no doubt had some influence on you. Yeah, I, um, you know, I sometimes think I've got progressive genes in my blood or something. <laughs> Could because happen. Because I... My my mother's uh, uncle, several of them, were very involved in progressive and left wing politics, um, and my my parents were also. and And I guess I've just sort of followed suit. That that first event of my political life that you referred to when I was three years old occurred at a fundraiser for Henry A. Wallace, the same that you and your father mm-hmm. were dealing with. And um, we were having a fundraiser in the basement of our house. My father had made a wheel of fortune. Yeah. It was a, it was a fundraising carnival. And my job was to spin the wheel of fortune every time one of the people there gave him a ticket. So that was my the beginning of my political career, I always like to think. I, I don't think I started at three, but I, I remember... Uh realizing that, uh, yeah, of course I was for Adlai Stevenson. <laughs> a little bit older than that, I don't know, but uh, <clears throat> Henry Wallace, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, obviously did not become president, but boy, he was, I, I don't want to digress too much, but he was, he, he could have uh, done a lot of good things. Uh, and uh, it does seem that there was a uh, coup at the 1944 Democratic Convention that kept him off the ticket and uh, uh, pulled the party, the Democratic Party, to the right. But uh, he was very inspiring, Henry A. Wallace, for those who haven't uh, heard of him. Or he was, and he had a, he had a long and very uh, uh, honorable career. I mean, he had held several positions, including vice president in FDR's yes. uh, time and the presidency. So the, it's unfortunate some of us think that he wasn't elected, but yes. uh, he certainly did a lot of good for the country. Oh, he certainly did, and I wish we had listened to that. Uh, he, uh, he he was on to the military-industrial complexes uh, games early, hmm. and they're still at it. Now, moving ahead yeah. a little bit, as a first grader, you were removed from your public school when your parents were denounced as communists. What happened exactly, and how did this lessons serve you years later? Well, my my brother and I were both in public school, our neighborhood public school, and um, this was 1950. That was, of course, the era of Joe McCarthy mm-hmm. and guilt by association. Mm-hmm. And one of the neighbors down the street apparently got wind of the fact that my parents were members of the Progressive Party. It was known at the time that there were communists in the Progressive Party, although it certainly didn't involve everyone. 
but this uh, this woman who felt she was going to save the neighborhood and save the school oh got up at a PTA meeting and, and denounced my parents as communists. Mm. And they decided pretty quickly that that probably wasn't the best place for us to be going to school, that mm. there might, in that day and age, be retribution or discrimination of some kind against us. Mm. So they... They this they took us out and we were enrolled in the University of Minnesota's lab schools and that's where we both stayed for the next uh, twelve years. And I hope the uh, school got better after that and realized what silliness that was to denounce people as communists. I, I hope so. But one never knows. And as I mentioned, back in the 50s, my parents, of course, supported Adlai Stevenson. Now, with 2021 vision, it seems like Republican President Eisenhower was domestically pretty much where Bernie Sanders is now in terms of high taxes on ultra-high income and keeping the New Deal alive. I'm curious why you wore an I Like Ike button when your family was with Stevenson. (laughs) Well, I have to credit my parents with their upbringing uh, of me because I was really given quite a lot of freedom of all kinds, and that mm. included choosing my own candidate at, gee, I guess I was seven and 52. Um, and so my mother was a volunteer at Stevenson headquarters, and yeah. I, meanwhile, was parading around every day oh with a jacket that was plastered with Eisenhower buttons including a, a beautiful four-inch diameter button with a picture of a smiling Ike on it. And my <laughs> my father and my brother and I were downtown St. Paul one day, wandering around, waiting for my mother to finish her volunteer work. And we went over to get her at Stevenson headquarters, and in I walked oh my. with this jacket on. And uh, she, she took quite a bit of a ribbing. But... <laughs> They were always willing to let me find my way, and at that point, I was a staunch Eisenhower supporter, the only one in the family. Yeah, well, he did. I certainly can't. I certainly can't explain it in political terms. Nah. <laughs> well, he did have a nice smile, and uh, it embarrasses me kind of. I was campaigning myself one year, and I was at a factory gate, and a woman stopped, looked me over, said, "I like your smile. I'll vote for you." And I just thought, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. But it works. It does matter, unfortunately. (laughs) Moving quickly ahead to 1968. Boy, what a year that was. That was a pivotal year in American history on so many many fronts. Tell us about where you were in 1968. Well, I was in Minnesota. I was in St. Paul, um, and I was finishing up college, I would graduate in March of that year, and I got caught up in the McCarthy, the Gene McCarthy presidential campaign. Um, He was the junior senator from Minnesota. I really didn't know that much about him when I first started getting involved, but I was helping some people with a newsletter uh, that was very... uh, anti-war, and so I learned Mm. a lot about McCarthy and the fact that he had come out against the war and Mm -hmm. put himself forward as a candidate. So I started volunteering, and um, that led to about, 
well, months of campaigning and to ultimately a, a position on the national staff working in primary states as well uh-huh. as states that, that weren't. Uh-huh. It was a very exciting thing to be doing, and it felt terrific. Yes, yes. I, my mother actually uh, was working for the uh, McCarthy campaign. We were all very much anti-Vietnam War, and I'm pleased with that, too. I mean, having uh, supportive parents, boy, it does make a big difference, doesn't it? Yeah, and, definitely. At the end of your senior year, your high school's student newspaper predicted graduates' futures. What was yours? <laughs> <laughs> well, they predicted I would be out picketing for the release of a friend of mine who had been jailed for uh, joining in a freedom walk. So I had actually started being pretty active politically because I was going to school on the University of Minnesota campus. We were exposed to a lot of publicity for events um, and marches that were going on. And so I was, you know, I was active already. And um, I lost my train of thought now. Um, After you graduated, what what the uh, predictions were for your futures? Oh, thank you, yes. So my my classmates pretty much knew what my politics were, and there was a uh, speaker coming to the University of Minnesota for the Student Peace Union, sponsored by the Student Peace Union group, and uh, I was going to that and also trying to create a high school chapter of the Student Peace Union at my high school. So... Um, that was my start, and I guess enough of my classmates knew where I was headed to predict my future out on the picket lines. Uh, yeah, well, if you haven't done that, it can be really fun. I, I like to tell people that if you haven't been involved in uh, you know, protests or political campaigns, it, it can really be a lot of fun, no doubt about that. And young people like fun, at least they used to. Yeah, there's... It's it's a very good feeling to be working with other people for something important. I mean, that's one of the best parts of activism, I think, is that it's just fun and and fulfilling. I mean, you just feel good about what you're doing, even even if you're not always successful. Yeah, for sure. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking with Dinah Yesney, who's got a new book out, called Politically Defined, Memoir of an Unknown Activist. And there are a lot of unknown activists. I was certainly a kid in the big crowd, uh, a little bit younger than you, but uh, I'm older than that now. (laughs) And Madison, Wisconsin. Whoa, interesting town that was. It probably still is. You were a college student there in a very interesting time. The summer between your sophomore and junior years at the University of Wisconsin was spent in Harlem, working on behalf of President Johnson's War on Poverty. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, I was working for an organization called How You Act um, up in Harlem in a Head Start program. And uh, for me, I had not had a lot of contact with black people. And our days, I say are, I was part of a, a summer program Um where people worked in uh, social service agencies and then had exposure to some of the early 
early and, and famous political thinkers of the day. And so three of us were at this Head Start program in Harlem, uh-huh. and we worked with the children the first day. <laughs> I think there were only two of them who actually showed up, so our first assignment was to go out into Harlem and find the rest of them. So that was interesting, and we met a lot of people, um, got a look at our new students' homes. For me, coming from suburban Minnesota, uh, urban Harlem was Mm. a big change. Mm -hmm. Pretty interesting. But (laughs) it was a terrific program, and the kids just soaked up everything they were exposed to, and it's, it's made me a lifelong proponent of Head Start and a lot of other programs like parent-child centers that have kind of been the variations on the theme. Boy, I'll tell you, I know, I when I whenever back in like the late '60s, I picture the 21st century. I thought for sure there'd be a great emphasis on education, especially you know bringing an education into uh, to people who are living in poverty and making a big difference and. I I never would have expected Republicans to be cutting education when it's such a clearly positive investment in in uh, you know a, a good future. I, it just it amazes me. But that's you know I mean whoever thought it, whoever thought that we'd have stuff like this. Now at University of Wisconsin, <laughs> apparently classes came to be of secondary importance. What did you regard as your primary learning opportunities? Well, I was really involved heavily in the anti-war movement in getting the United States out of Vietnam. Um, The campus was very active. There were teach-ins going on. There were uh, demonstrations. There were um, forays into the Madison community. We certainly didn't restrict our activity to the campus at all. Just trying to educate people, first of all, about Vietnam and about the history of the country's involvement there, because most people, until that war began, uh, knew nothing about the background, and that included me, as well as everybody else. Uh, So we were busy, you know, morning, noon, and night, putting together uh, petitions, putting together flyers and other kinds of educational pieces that we could hand out, and demonstrating and it made a difference. It absolutely made a difference. And it's amazing how I know that, uh, you know, when I was first exposed to the war in Vietnam, I I bought what was being sold. You know, we were protecting democracy and freedom from communist aggression. Whew, boy, was that wrong. <laughs> boy, was that wrong. Yeah. It didn't, you know, we knew nothing about the French and about the independence movements. And I, as somebody on one of my shows a while ago said, we got to think with history. Very rarely do people do that. Now, back back in the 60s, a lot of young Americans worked outside the system to push for progressive change. And that, that certainly does matter. But working to make change from within also can make a difference. And you apparently chose both. Why and how? Tell us about that. Well, I've, yeah, I've always chosen both because I think that it's so difficult to make change that we really can't afford to choose one possible means of doing it over another. We need to try all, everything we can and use all the tools at our disposal. 
in the case of of Vietnam, a big a big piece of it was working within the Democratic Party uh, to pressure President Lyndon Johnson not to run again because he was the standard bearer for that war. Mm. And uh, he did, in fact, uh, announce that he wouldn't run during the McCarthy presidential campaign, which was a was a huge change then in mm-hmm. in the conversation. Yeah. But um, but it's it's interesting this inside outside debate. Yeah. It still goes on today. There are people. In fact, I know there are people who don't even want to invite politicians to speak at uh, at rallies because they feel that somehow that's lessening their power or their strength. And I have to say, I completely disagree with that because. You know, politicians are the people who make most of these big decisions in the end. And um, we have a lot of allies who are politicians. I don't consider politician a dirty word at all. And we need them on our side, and they need us on their side. So, I don't know. Inside and outside doesn't make sense to me to choose one or the other. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, so many different... uh... Uh, issues, nuclear power, whatever, working inside and outside uh, is absolutely uh, essential. And uh, the Democratic, of course, you must remember, I don't know the exact quote from A. Philip Randolph, was the uh, leader of the uh, Pullman Porters Union when uh, Franklin Roosevelt was president, and he was trying to do something about uh, discrimination and fair wages. Uh, a. Philip Randolph was. And so the story goes anyway. FDR says, I'm with you. I want to do it. Now go out there and make me do it. And that works. <laughs> right, exactly. They need the backup. They need to be able to turn around and say, this is what the people want. And, Absolutely. you know, that, that our next election is going to be very interesting because if things remain the way they are at the moment, you're going to have the Republican uh, mm-hmm. the congressional Republicans who have voted against this $1.9 trillion stimulus package. Yeah. But you're going to have the people who love it. And it's uh-huh. going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. Of course, a lot can happen between now and then, so I'm not predicting. I'm just just pointing it out. <laughs> oh, it's a good point. And, and, you know, again, as I said in the very beginning, people... Th- somehow have been led to believe that they're powerless. We are not powerless. The politicians, you know, they they want to get reelected. That's number one. How they get reelected is by having people support them and like what they're doing. So you got to make it safe for them to do that. It's Yeah, it's all about numbers. <laughs> and and convincing people and that's the way to get things done. I mean, if there hadn't been an anti-war movement, who knows when the war would have finally ended? It didn't end until 1975, of course, but it started, and the pressure did matter. I mean, there is, uh, you know, the the law of uh, Newton's law, whatever. To every pressure, you know, action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, and that that happens. Yeah. But we do, we do accomplish things sometimes. And you live in Vermont now, and Vermont, boy, it certainly has a unique and valuable identity. Actually, when people hear the word Vermont, it, it's a it's a very positive brand that people get. When you began your work 
at Vermont's Department of Social Welfare, most of what you knew and thought about poverty came from books or from the low-income people you had worked with in other limited contexts, like I imagine uh, Harlem. Now it was the focus of your work, and you were seeing it up close. How did that experience in Vermont, uh, Department of Social Welfare, square with your previous encounters? It's a bit different. Yeah, it. I mean, it was the kind of thing that makes you catch your breath. I, I would visit at that time. I was a. I was what what's commonly known as welfare, a welfare caseworker, and the requirement was that we visit our clients in their homes uh, twice a year. So I'm visiting people in their homes, and they're you know, offering a cup of coffee as we sit down in the kitchen and they open the cupboard and there's nothing in it. I mean, these Mm. people, these people, families with children with almost nothing to eat. Um, You know, these things were shocking to me. I had another um, very memorable experience when I was going to see a client I hadn't visited at home yet. And I'm looking for the house, and I'm I'm sure I've got the directions right, and I'm passing something, but it didn't seem like it could possibly Mm. be a house. Mm -hmm. And after driving back and forth a couple times, I went up to the door, and sure enough, this structure, which looked like it shouldn't have been lived in for maybe 10 years, was in fact sheltering a family through a Vermont winter. Mm. Other clients had, you know, chickens, pigs, goats uh, in their yard, making do uh, with that, raising their own food. It was a completely different world than not only anything I'd known, but even anything that I'd seen. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. We don't often think to look around nearby, uh, because it is, I mean, one of the things about, I think, power, uh, the power of injustice is keeping things that we don't want to see out of our vision so we don't have mm. to look at it and you you got right in there and uh did do that stuff how how did you what was your work like how did you uh make a difference in these people's lives do you think the department of social welfare well um i tried a few new things um for one thing, uh, the the benefits were pretty minimal. Uh, it was hard to imagine how people were getting mm. by on the amount of money they received. So mm-hmm. one of the first things I organized was a clothing depot in the bottom of the, the basement of the welfare department building. And that was a huge success, so huge a success that we had to move it elsewhere, uh, finding quickly that vacant storefronts and places we thought would be ideal were strangely not available to us. Mm -hmm. You know, these Mm -hmm. were people that nobody really wanted to see on Main Street, Mm -hmm. going to your point of keeping things out of view. So we ended up in the basement of a huge Catholic church up on the hill, uh, stone walls, dirt floor, low ceiling, um, it always reminded me a little bit of what I thought a medieval prison might look oh, like. <laughs> but uh, we did our best, and we had some uh, community vista help, and people loved it. They, you know, we had room to spread out. We had room for more clothing. It was a huge success. Another thing that I tried um, 
we had access to the Lions Clubs, which are known nationally, I'm sure, for their willingness to support Mm -hmm. uh, the purchase of eyeglasses for people who can't afford them. But they, you know, they have limited resources also, so they couldn't always provide for the amount of people that needed glasses. So I started a fundraising campaign, just sent out letters to companies, businesses, uh, individuals that we knew who we thought might contribute to help us pay for eyeglasses. And this was this was pretty interesting because the director of the office of the welfare department got a call from her higher ups telling her that this had to stop. Yeah. And the reason the reason was that the local bank president who had been happy to send us a contribution, mm-hmm. had also called the governor and wanted to know why the state of Vermont wasn't giving people glasses if they couldn't see. So uh, apparently the governor wasn't happy to have his budget question in quite this way and decided that the whole thing was a bad idea. So, it, uh, you know, there were I, things we started like that that were that were very helpful to people. Yeah, it seems like, you know, in in this society, it still takes uh, individual initiative. And uh, sometimes the government picks up on it. Sometimes it expands and say, you know, people can see, hey, that works. That's a good idea. It's a good investment. But oftentimes there are other powers that, uh, you know, may not like the idea of... uh, government doing things that uh, they prefer to just have it as charity, as handouts, so that they don't have to make any real changes. You're getting a little bit of my political point of view stuck in there. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're speaking with Dinah Yesney about her new book, Politically Defined, Memoir of an Unknown Activist, What She's Been Able to Get Done, and Unique Experience uh, of uh, Growing Up Post-War and uh, making a difference here. And my my sense is that very few things that serve to accomplish real change, especially those that improve the lives of the underdog, are picked up by the media, and fewer still are noted in history. As a resource coordinator for Vermont's fledgling Agency of Human Services, you experienced that bureaucracy firsthand. How did your brainchild, the Newport Resource Group, Address that. Tell us about that adventure, please. Well, it was um, it was triggered by a national trend in um, social welfare agencies around the country to separate uh, the determination of a family's eligibility for financial help from the provision of social services. So those two positions, those two tasks, were divided. And that was the beginning of what became a a very fractured uh, social service delivery system. Uh, It it people did not get help with their problems from the same person they got. They had to see about their financial needs, and then the next thing that happened was that, well, let's break those needs up, and then the person who needed. well, let's say medical care of a specialized kind was getting help from someone different than the person that they uh, got Mm -hmm. educational help from who was helping them get 
a general education diploma, for example. And the number of people working with the same family or even just the same individual multiplied and multiplied to the point where people didn't know who was doing what and things were getting duplicated or missed entirely. So my thought was, and it was a very simple idea, to try to bring these people together once a month so they could talk to each other and let them know what what they had to offer and how that could be accessed for other people's clients and just to form relationships that would ease referrals back and forth. So we started the Newport Resource Group, and um, the only people that really were required to come were people from the other state departments, but the people from the private nonprofits that Mm had uh, grown up to solve different problems found that they could make good use of it too. So it was really a very successful monthly meeting. And in Vermont, it was uh, duplicated all around the state. Mm. And I suspect that in other places, I mean, it wasn't, this was not rocket science. Right. I'm sure other people have the same thought elsewhere. And I certainly hope that similar groups have sprung up other places. People actually working together, letting one hand know what the other one is doing? No. Yeah, it's a radical <laughs> thought, isn't it? <laughs> it just, and you and I see it now, you know, with so many charities, good, worthy causes, begging all the time the same people for money. Oftentimes, you know, I, I wonder how efficient it is if there's not a lot of uh, overlap between them, because they don't necessarily uh, talk with one another, unfortunately. Uh, And there's, of course, a different kind. Yeah, I would love to see it go back to the way it was. I think that, you know, family casework and social casework in in general really provide a much more personal um, assistance Mm. to someone who's struggling and who really wants to have help. And if you can have a professional person involved in identifying what exactly would would be of help that's so important and it keeps it keeps problems from becoming emergencies in my uh-huh. opinion uh-huh. and one hears i think less these days but still well if you're poor it's because you're lazy you don't work hard enough you don't take it's it's your fault if you're poor what would you say to that yeah, that's a very common belief, and it's mm. just so wrong. I I have done a lot of, when it, when I became an attorney, I, I did a lot of Social Security disability work. Mm-hmm. And I found that there are, I mean, I would say almost none, but that seems a little extreme. There, there are so few people who really can't, who really think they can't work but really can Mm-hmm. There are not uh, there are not people out there trying to cheat the system. They're just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And um, when you get right down to it, you know, you talk to someone and you see that they have not been able to afford dental care for many years. Right. You know, no one's going to hire them to work in a store or do anything with the public. Right. And people just don't appreciate these these issues and these problems, even though. If they came face-to-face with it, they'd say they wouldn't hire that person themselves. 
And it's not for, as you say, it's not for any lack of work ethic, not at all. People want to be productive. It makes them feel better. And uh, Absolutely. I think a, a lot of the, let's face it, the system, you know, the policies that there are. I mean, you talk about uh, people not cheating the system. Well, hello, the people at the very top, you know, with their tax benefits and, uh, you know, they cheat the system, too, and they make real, <laughs> right. I mean, serious dollars, you know, here and there. You know, the, the old uh, Reagan image of, the, of the, the welfare queen. Not so. The system is no. really being taken advantage of by those at the very top. And I, I, I hope someday there'll be a, a psychiatric treatment for those who are super rich and are in a frenzy for more. Cheating. Frenzy for more. Yeah. They, it's just, it's not... Not healthy at all, I don't think. Uh, moving up to the year 2000, that was an uh, interesting time in Vermont. What was the contentious issue that you were working on in Vermont in 2000? Well, 2000 was the year that the Vermont Supreme Court decided that it was uh, unconstitutional under the Vermont Constitution to deny uh, homosexual couples the right to enter into relationships that were the same as marriage, regardless of what they were called. And so they tasked the legislature with coming up with a system that would, that would do that, that would, that would allow couples to marry. Uh, and Vermont came up with the civil union yes. bill. Mm-hmm. And this just uh, wreaked havoc in the, in the state. People were for or against. I don't think there was anyone in the middle. Yeah. And <laughs> um, it was a big battle. And 2000 was the year following the adoption of the, well, it, November of 2000 was the, was the election mm. in which people who had supported the bill were uh, subjects of extreme financial uh, opposition by national right-wing groups as well as Vermont right-wing groups. And then on the other side, of course, people were trying to defend them. If you had voted for the bill, you were were in trouble and you needed a lot of support. And so in that year, um, I decided to run for the state Senate. Uh, I felt very strongly that homosexuality really had nothing to do with who people should or could love and and where the, what kind of relationship they should be able to enter into and um, it was it was quite a it was quite a time in Vermont there were huge signs all over the state saying take back Vermont oh, right. um, and so some of these are still up it's quite amazing 20 years later yeah. Um but it was it was a bitter, bitter time, and uh, it was an important time to to say where you stood and why. And people did, thank goodness. I mean, one one of the main reasons for my running in a district which was going to almost surely not elect me mm-hmm. was to give people a chance to state their views and make their views known and force the opposition to state their views and give their rationale so that people really knew who was who and what they were voting about. Ah, so winning isn't, I mean, it's nice, 
but it's not everything. Raising the issues, and I think, as you say, fa- forcing the opposition to state their views. Interesting. So you didn't win. I mean, Vermont has been traditionally, believe it or not, I mean, people think of Bernie Sanders, uh, pretty old-school conservative Republican. There was Senator George Aiken for a long time. Uh, but you you did not carry the day, I believe. But you did become only the third female Supreme Court law clerk in the state's history. Tell us about what that was like to break that glass ceiling, please. Well, it didn't, I mean, it, I didn't feel like I was breaking glass ceiling. For one thing, I <laughs> when I got the job, I didn't know I was only the third person to clerk for a Supreme Court justice, and um, and I didn't really run into a lot of problems because of it. So it, I was glad to 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 be there and to do it when I learned what that this was somewhat unusual, and it did in fact pave the path for others because immediately the next year another woman was uh, was hired as a clerk, and it's it's continued. Uh, yeah. along those lines. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad to have been of help, but I didn't, it wasn't really a battle that I had to fight. It. I was fortunate mm-hmm. in that the justice who hired me clearly didn't see any reason why a woman couldn't do the job. And, and uh, that was what it took. I can't take any credit for his decision. But you did the job and no doubt you did it well. And, you know, I, just getting back to uh, talking about running for office, back in college, at, at the end of the massive anti-war protests, one option put out there for many of us activists by our teachers was running for office ourselves. I ran for a couple of things, and after I lost two races, but then I, I was elected to New Hampshire State Senate. And later on, you know, wearing a jacket and tie, keeping my hair trimmed, despite... <laughs> <laughs> you got to look like that, you know. I got to right. <laughs> Ma- Madeline Cunin, she was governor at the time. You she, you answered her call to run for the state legislative seat in your wicked Republican district. <laughs> and and you you did not win, but the task of running for office can pay off in real gains anyway. What what do you feel was gained by your effort? Talk a little bit more about that. Well, yeah, I mean, that again, that was a very conservative district. It was a slightly different district than than what I had run in in 2000, which was a Senate district, much oh, larger. Uh-huh. This was just the town of St. Johnsbury. And oh. although Vermont is known as a progressive state, it does have its pockets mm-hmm. of conservatism. And anyone would tell you that the Northeast Kingdom mm-hmm. is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where I was running. There actually hadn't been a Democrat uh, who had even attempted to run for the previous eight years. So that gives you some idea about how likely it was I would prevail. <laughs> but, um, but you know, first of all, when, the go- when a governor asks you to do something, I yeah. feel you should do it if you can. Yeah. Um, people need to be part of their, of their democracy on whatever scale. And if you can serve in some way and figure out what that way is, I think we have all have an obligation to do that. So I felt that was something I could do, so I did, I did say yes, and I did run. Mm-hmm. 
And this is for the House of Representatives, right? Right, yeah. The State House. Yes. State House. Yes, yes. Not, yeah. not federal. I understand that. Uh, right. And, and for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. This show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about keeping democracy alive by doing something, by getting involved. You don't have to be a hero. You don't have to be a celebrity. Running for office and getting involved absolutely can make a difference, even if, you know, nobody or hardly anybody really knows about it. It can still make a difference. If you keep your eyes on the prize, as it were, you can help bring the prize. And we're talking with Dinah Yesny, who's got a new book out, Politically Defined Memoir of an Unknown Activist. And speaking of Vermont, knowing Vermont uh, somewhat as I do, it amazed me that people outside of the state saw Howard Dean as some real lefty governor. Every Vermonter <laughs> knew better. <laughs> Though you still harbored hopes of a judgeship, a position appointed by the governor, you nevertheless went after Governor Howard Dean and his 1996 budget mercilessly in your organization's newsletter. Tell us about that. To what end and at what cost? Tell us about that. Sounds like fun. Sort of. Well, I... I was uh, <laughs> I was practicing law at that time, and uh, one of my clients was an organization called the Vermont Low Income, Low Vermont Assistance Inc., which hired a lobbyist to lobby on behalf of low income people. Mm. And as, as you say, Governor Dean was in in many areas not the progressive some people thought he was. And one of the areas in in which he was lacking was in his knowledge of multi-generational poverty and what Mm. what the dynamic is and what people what people are facing uh in dealing with poverty in Vermont. And his choices in his budget were unfair, I felt, and the the group felt more important because I was taking my direction from a group called the Vermont Low Income Advocacy Council. And they were trying to get an increase in uh, welfare benefits at a time when the state was in quite good shape financially and all sorts of other programs were getting increases. But the welfare budget had been uh, flat funded um, even though the social welfare department itself was saying that the number of people in poverty had had increased, so we set out to see what we could do, and we did have a newsletter in which uh, we went after the governor and his budget as hard as we could, and it, we were successful in getting the legislature to go along with an increase. I'm happy to say. Oh, good. Yeah, see, it can work sometimes. You know, it's, it's, it's right. The so, system does work sometimes. There are Absolutely. people, as I'm sure you would agree, on the left who feel like you know you got to lose all the time. You know, you're not righteous unless you lose. <laughs> I, it's better to win. It really is. <laughs> Definitely better to win. And you know, as I say, I, um, you know, you mentioned that I was still harboring hopes of a judgeship. Right. someday, which I was. That's why I went into law. That was my ultimate goal. Um, but, you know, it it wasn't right what he was doing. Not only was my not only were my clients telling me they wanted to fight this as strongly as they could, but it just it was consistent with my own feeling that what he was doing was not right. So I didn't have any problem pursuing it. 
Yeah, and again, it it did amaze me how you know when you were in Vermont and you asked about the governor, people say, yeah, he's you know kind of a corporate guy and you know not particularly liberal. And then outside the state, image. You know, there's reality, and then there's image. And what we're talking about with your work is the reality of making a difference, of actually helping people out. And we talked a little bit about uh, child care and how important it is. It appears that today affordable child care as an essential benefit for working parents has lost its standings. It was at the core of much of your legal and political work from the birth of your children and across the rest of your life. For example, is it is it still important to your values and vision, this, this child care? That I, it amazes me how we haven't done more on that. Yeah, it's true. I mean, I have um, I have five grandchildren, and a couple of them are still pre not in full time elementary school yet. And when I see what the cost of childcare is uh, for those children, uh, it's just shocking, absolutely shocking. And they aren't, you know, it's not like they're going to a fancy private childcare academies or anything like that. They're just in regular rural Vermont childcare, good solid places, right. but very expensive. So I'm I mean the the new stimulus package has a lot of recognition of affor- the need for affordable childcare in it. And I'm hoping, but it's hard to say of course at this point that this really will, in fact, be a policy shift that that we see for years to come. I'm mm. I'm hoping, but it's going to take a lot of work by a lot of people. Absolutely, and we can't forget that. You can't just say, "Oh, the president will take care of it." Uh, uh-uh. we got to keep on pushing, keep on pushing. That's for sure. And I I do also have hopes for President Biden. I think. Uh, I don't know. He's got some of that FDR and uh, LBJ in him. Hopefully not the same war stuff, but he did. Well, LBJ didn't really have his heart in that either, but that's another story. You joined the Poor People's Campaign in 2018, and you made a decision to cross a line you hadn't crossed before to commit civil disobedience. Why, after a lifetime of working within the system, within the rules, did you feel it time to break the law? There is a place for that stuff too. Yeah, I and I certainly had been been tempted, sorely tempted to to engage in civil disobedience earlier in my life, but uh, for various reasons I I'd held back. But ever since 2008, the recession and the the exposure of the tremendous greediness of some of the lenders and banks that were behind mm-hmm. them. And then on up into 2018, when the Poor People's Campaign was revived, mm-hmm. um, it just, it was just too much for me. I couldn't, couldn't be silent any longer. Mm-hmm. And, and not being silent at that point, I mean, people were already doing all of the usual things, and it seemed clear to me that it had to go to another level uh-huh. if people were going to really understand what was happening. I knew in Vermont, I know, I knew people personally who were doing a great job of covering up how much they were struggling financially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and 
trying to keep that hidden. And, mm. uh, the, you know, even if the people weren't in poverty, they were truly struggling. And it just was time to take another step, I felt. So what did you do? Well, I joined the Poor People's Campaign, and uh, their initial 40 Days of Action uh, was a program in as many states as they could cover, by which there would be a rally on every Monday for a six-week right. period of time, followed by, a, yeah, followed by a uh, civil disobedience. Uh-huh. And so we just started out, I think it was in May that it began, um, Every Monday, uh, there was a different action, mm-hmm. and I was arrested, and then I was arrested again, and then I was informed by the judge that I, having broken my condition of release from oh. my first arrest by being arrested the second time, that I was now in some greater peril, Oops. and uh <laughs> I would do well. I would do well to uh, curb my actions, but I did end up, in fact, being arrested three times. Oh my! And I think in other states uh, where the publicity was yes. was handled in a different way, perhaps it would have made more dent. It, there was a question whether the people really knew why we were doing what we were doing as much as we would have liked them to. They they knew people were getting rested, and they knew what the topic of the rally was for, but I'm not sure that we were successful in really conveying right. what that meant to Vermonters. So, um, Well, if something's not on the TV, it didn't happen, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's how a lot of people feel. And... I, you, I'm sure you hear this too. Young people these days who consider themselves active, and I love it, they tend to blame the boomer generation for a lot of today's problems. I remember at the time, I had the impression that only about 15% of us cared about making political and cultural change. And it is always a minority that, that gets it done. What's been your reaction when you hear our generation judged this way? Well, it hasn't really been my experience. I mean, I I think people have done a lot, and I think that people who started being politically active in the 60s have continued to be politically active, even though we're getting old. Mm-hmm. Um, and mo- I think I think for the most part, many have brought their children and their children's yes. children along with them. So. I'm I'm encouraged by the number of people who are active, and I have a great amount of faith in the two two generations younger than I am mm-hmm. that they will do a more successful job than than what we did. I have that same feeling. I, I'm very very optimistic about it. Well, where we are today, the popularity of Trumpism is a highly depressing surprise compared to what we envisioned. But I wonder if it's possible that. Since our vision and values kind of got their start so many years ago, have had time to mature and be better defined than they may have been 50 years ago, perhaps optimism is not unreasonable. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Um, you know, you, you see what's worked and what hasn't worked, and you see that sometimes it's a long haul, but sure. it still works in the end. 
um, and it does give you what you need to keep going, I think. Indeed. Well, fascinating stuff. It's good to to read about uh, the memoir of an unknown activist. That's the subtitle of the book, Politically Defined. Our guest has been Diana Yesney, and it's a cool cover with all kinds of buttons on it, Keep Abortion Legal, March for Women Lives, Boycott Grapes, etc., etc. Thank you so much for being with us today. Fascinating discussion, and we got to keep on keeping on, as they say. Thanks very much. Here's a Jefferson Airplane song from 1971. Looking forward to just a few years, a little bit over-optimistic. Great platforms in the mountains 